Last Sunday, we jumped into Galatians. We gave a quick intro, probably a little bit too long, and then we listened to the whole letter of Galatians, and we responded with these cards. And the challenge that we gave, and hopefully you've taken up this challenge, is that once a week, we're going to find about 20 minutes, uh, each of us individually, where we can either listen to or read the letter of Galatians in one sitting so that we're hearing the whole thing regularly so that when we're gathered on Sundays and hearing parts of it, it fits into the bigger narrative of what Paul's saying. And then there are three questions we want you to respond to when you do that one sitting thing. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One is so that you kind of have direction in your thinking, because if you're like me, 20 minutes in the same thing, your mind can wander all over the place. The second is we want you to hand these in. Don't put names on them or anything like that. There's no grading or anything like that. But you hand them in because it's helpful to me as I lead us through this letter that I'm answering the questions that are rising up in your heart as you're uh, encountering the letter. So uh, it was a great response last Sunday and some fantastic questions that we will absolutely get to over the next uh, 11 weeks plus one week today as we go through Galatians. So if you did this this week and brought them, just dunk them in the box. There's a whole other stack. Take another one with you. If you're like, oh shoot, I forgot, that's okay, but make sure you do it this week. So take one to go with you, uh, because if we only did it for the first week, then we're not going to be continually engaging, and we kind of miss the point. Fair enough? Good. So these are on the back table. Uh, Make sure you grab one of those as you go. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can guess that we are turning to Galatians chapter 1. And really the the couple of verses that we're going to focus on today, verses 6 through 9, are really the what we call the thesis, Paul's thesis for his whole letter. This is, he's right after the point here, and in understanding these three verses, we're going to have a, a sense of the entire argument or the entire gist of Paul's letter. This is what he writes. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, Let them be under God's curse. So what on earth is going on in the churches of Galatia? Let me give you a a, a couple minutes here in talking about the original meaning and what's happening in the context in Galatia, and then we'll try to jump into making sense of this for us in our modern-day lives. So it is likely that Paul's, the churches in Galatia were churches that were formed and established on Paul's first missionary journey. And they're in the southern part of what is modern-day central Turkey. Uh, towns like Pisidian, Antioch, Lystra, Derby, Iconium. Uh, you'll find those in the middle of the book of Acts where Paul's visiting these places. They would have been not far from Antioch where he was launching his ministry. And they were responding to the gospel They were not Jewish people. They were Gentile, uh, Greek culture, Roman-led. And they were responding to Jesus as 
king, Jesus as the Messiah who would be the ruler uh, of the world. And so Paul would move on and continue and uh, go on other journeys as well. But at some point after Paul had left, other teachers came into these churches in southern Galatia. And these teachers had a Jewish background. That is, uh, possibly they're coming up from Jerusalem or somewhere like that. They had a Jewish background, but they also had a faith in Jesus. So they believed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, but they also believed that to be pleasing to God or to be accepted by God into his family, you had to be distinctly Jewish. And so they were teaching the Galatians basically something like this. Paul has gotten you off to a good start, but you're not there yet. In order for you to truly be into God's family, you have to become Jewish. That is that you have to do the Jewish rites and and become sort of ethnically Jewish. And the biggest way that this happened for men was that they would be circumcised. And so what you have here is a demand on men to be circumcised in order to be marked by God and therefore welcomed into the family of God. And then, of course, women and men to follow sort of Jewish ritual systems as God's people. And the Galatians are eating this up hook, line, and sinker. And at some point, Paul gets message, whether it's a messenger, whether it's a letter. Somehow Paul hears about what's going on, and he writes them a letter. This is Paul's first letter that we have access to. We don't know if he's written other ones that just didn't, kind of didn't survive antiquity. But this is the first one. This is an early letter, and it is a passionate letter. Uh, several of you and your questions in reading Galatians said something like this. Boy, Paul's really ticked off. What's that all about, right? Or is Paul always this angry? Or is Paul maybe a little over the top? And what I would say to you is a couple of things. Uh, Perhaps Paul is kind of younger in his faith and it is a little bit overzealous, but I don't think so. More importantly, and this is consistent throughout Paul's ministry, whenever he sees the purity of the gospel being attacked, he responds with passion and zeal to stop it. And he responds with anger towards those who are propagating it. Uh, Martin Luther says it this way, if you were a parent and you came outside your house and down the street you saw a giant dog biting your child and your child was in great peril, you would probably start screaming at the dog as you ran there to free your child. Does this make sense? And so what's going on is Paul screaming and yelling at the false teachers to stop as he's attempting to rescue these babies, these new believers in Jesus, from the mouth of those who would lead them astray. Paul says they're confusing you and they're perverting the gospel. The word perverted actually means to take something good and turn it and make it bad. And so you have in Galatia, Paul saying, you have compromised the gospel of Christ. That is, the gospel is no longer just Christ, but you've added to it. So are we embraced by God through the work of Christ alone? 
Or are we embraced by God through the work of Jesus plus our actions to please God? When Paul came and preached the gospel, it was just Jesus. When the teachers came after Paul, they said, Jesus is important, but you've also got to do these Jewish things. And Paul says something really important. He said that gospel is actually no gospel at all. And he's playing on the word gospel. Because the word gospel in its literal translation means good news. He's saying that set of beliefs that you're subscribing to is actually not good news. It's actually going to bind you up just as much as you were before you met Christ. That is that you'll be just as enchained as you were before meeting Christ if you take a gospel like this. So, what does that mean for us today? Because I'm guessing that many of you aren't wrestling with this idea of circumcision as whether it's important or not in your modern day faith, right? Uh, How does that make sense for us? How do we wrestle with these things? And I think what we'll see this morning is that there are two ways, two larger categories that are ways that we accept an other gospel. But in order for us to truly understand those, we need to stop and pause and remember exactly what the gospel is in and of itself. And so let me attempt to define the gospel in a way that I think is distinctly Pauline, how Paul would have said it if we said to him, define the gospel in five words, right? Actually, I can do it in four. This is Paul's gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, those four statements are packed with all kinds of meaning and all kinds of implication for us and for everyone. And this is why Paul was teaching the church and explaining it and why uh, there's things like sermons in our church today. But basically, at the core of these four statements is two big realities that make up the gospel. The first is that Jesus is Christ, that he's the Messiah, that he rescued us, that he has saved us. Paul said earlier to the Galatians in in verse 3 through 5 that he has rescued us from this present evil age. Jesus is our Savior. Through his work on the cross and through the victory of his resurrection, he has defeated the sin which has enslaved us and has set us free from it. He has saved us. This is the gospel. But the gospel is also that Jesus is Lord. That is that Jesus came... To establish a kingdom, to gather a people to live with God in a land of God's choosing, to use Old Testament language. That we have not just been set free, but we've been welcomed into a family. Does this make sense? And so this is why Paul is huge on the illustration of adoption. And he really fleshes it out in Ephesians. Ephesians is one of his later letters, and so he's really developed this whole line of thinking. This idea that you've rescued, you've been rescued, you've been taken from a perilous situation, and you've been welcomed into this healthy family of God, where God is leading the family, and we are moving in submission to him. Does this make sense? Jesus is our rescuer, he's our savior, but he's also our Lord. Let me say it like this. That is that the gospel 
is not just an entrance into something. It is the something. Or as I've said it before, the gospel is not just the ticket to the party. The gospel is the party. Or as one author said it, and probably better than I've ever tried to, the gospel is not a diving board. It's the swimming pool. Does this make sense? For many of us who have grown up in the church, we have heard that the gospel is the diving board. It's the means by which we get into the family of God. And that's true, but it's not enough. The gospel is also what it means to exist in this family of God. Did you ever play that uh, game as a kid in the pool, Marco Polo? Do you remember that game? So we were lucky enough to have a swimming pool when, when I was a kid, and we would play Marco Polo. And uh, you say, Marco, the person says Marco, another person says Polo, and they're trying to find them while their eyes are closed in the pool. But of course, the dirty trick you can play on people is what? You get out of the pool, right? And then you can't be caught. And I think, unfortunately, for many of us in the church, we're playing a rogue game of Marco Polo. We jumped in, and now we're trying to live outside of it instead of living within the family of God. What I mean by that is... For many of us, we embrace the rescue of Jesus, and then we feel like we have to prove ourselves to God on the other side. Does that make sense? Or we feel like we can do whatever we want to on the other side because God has rescued us. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is both of those are other gospels that are no gospel at all. What Paul talks about is being set free and adopted into a new family. Some of you might be too old for this. Many of you are too young for this. But when I was a kid, uh, in the heart of the 80s, there was a movie called The Goonies. Everyone, everyone remember that movie, The Goonies? All right. In The Goonies, there were this group of kids who were in search of buried treasure or hidden treasure somewhere. And to find it, they got into this residence of this family called the Fratellis. These were bad people, criminals, crooks, symbolic of the, of the world, as it were. And they get into the bottom of this place, and uh, when they're down there, they meet, I don't know how to describe this guy, this man named Sloth. You remember Sloth from the Goonies, right? Is he, is he a family member? Was he created? I don't know exactly know what Sloth's story was, but he was sort of imprisoned down there. Remember that? But the problem was he was so strong he could rip himself out of prison. Well, to make a long story short, the Fratellis had controlled Sloth, but by the end of the movie, when uh, the movie's coming to an end and they've rescued some of the jewels and found hidden pirates and all kinds of crazy things that happens in the 1980s, there's this scene where Chunk, remember Chunk, who's one of the kids, is with Sloth on the beach, and he puts his arm around Sloth and says, Sloth, you're going to come and live with us now. And to me, it's this crazy, unique, yet beautiful picture of the gospel. That is that we are enchained in this world and enchained by our own flesh and our sin. What Christ has done is absolutely set us free from that. But it's even more glorious than that. He's called us into his family. You're going to come and live with us now. One of the beauties and realities of adoption is that you take on a new name, but you keep your personal existence, right? 
You're created the way you are with your personality and your joys and your interests and your likes and your talents and your abilities. But when you come into a new family, that family has a culture. That family has a way of doing life. That family has a a worldview, an expectation that exists within that family. And the same is true for us when we talk about the gospel. That is that the gospel welcomes us into this family and the gospel itself gives us a whole new way of looking at the world, a whole new way of thinking about how we choose, how we behave, how we think, how we analyze. And it's all through the lens of God, of Jesus as Lord. There was a recent movie called Instant Family that our family watched a little bit ago. It was a really touching movie um, about a couple who adopted older kids and also tells the story of these kids learning the new culture of living in this new family. What I would suggest to you is, again, another beautiful example of what it means to believe the gospel is not just an entrance, but also the life within a new family. Let me try to summarize it this way. The gospel is not just a set of beliefs that you intellectually agree with. It is a whole new identity that you agree with. A whole new way of living. So, the word that Paul is going to use time after time in Galatians is the word liberty. Right? Those who have been set free are free indeed. But notice that the word liberty or the concept of liberty means that you have been acted upon. Liberty is not something that you have done or have earned. God has acted on you in setting you free. And on the basis of that, we live for God. Any false gospel is going to change that narrative and start talking about you. It's not that you've been acted upon. It's what you have to do or what you can do. Does this make sense? So, if liberty is the central beauty of the gospel, gospel both diving board and pool, both belief and life, both intellect and identity, then there are for us and all throughout history really two large categories of what we would call other gospels that are no gospel at all. Liberty in the center on one hand, we have what we'll call legalism, right? And legalism basically sets to add to the gospel. And I would suggest to you that legalism struggles to believe that Jesus is really Savior. And so legalism will take and add to. It will take and add to the gospel in terms of doctrine, right? Jesus plus, so this is what's going on in the churches at Galatia. It's Jesus plus circumcision. Now for us in our day, it's not Jesus plus circumcision. But all throughout the church, you will find lots of doctrine that it's Jesus plus something else equals the gospel. This happens whenever we take secondary issues and make them primary, right? So whenever we take our personal opinions or personal experience and determine them to be mandatory for everyone else. This is what we'll call legalism. That it's no longer Jesus only, the gospel of Christ, but it's the gospel of Christ plus your view on the end times. The gospel of Christ 
plus the style of music that you sing. The gospel of Christ plus the dress code at a church. The gospel of Christ plus these personal experiences that have been codified. But because the gospel is not just intellect, it's also identity, then, it's, then, it, then false doctrines are not, false gospels are not just doctrine, they're also praxis, right? You know what I mean by praxis? Like how we live or how we order our lives. And so there is a legalistic way in doing that too. What basically means that in legalism we flaunt our obedience in order to express our value. Does this make sense? We flaunt our obedience in order to gain value precisely from God, but also from other people. And so to be a little bit out with it, for many people, the gospel is great news. I couldn't have done it myself, but now that I'm in, I'm going to show God what I can do for him. Right? And so it can be any number of things, and usually all wonderfully good things if rightly ordered that get added to this. But the truth of the gospel is that the gospel is not a conditional reality that God is intending to undo based on our performance. Legalism. Whenever you're speaking against legalism, the first thing that comes up is, well, does that mean that we can do whatever we want to do? Right? And Paul was accused of this all the time. Undoubtedly, the very first thing that the false teachers were saying in Galatia was, yeah, Paul thinks you can do whatever you want. Jesus came and died for you, now go live however you want. How do we know that? Because in nearly every letter, Paul is answering that very question. Right? Romans 6, most, most distinctly, where Paul says, should we sin that grace would increase? By no means. Meganoito is the Greek. It's strong. It's powerful. It matters how you live. There is a false gospel, and other gospel that is what we'll call license. Right? And license not, does not add to the gospel. It actually takes away from the gospel. And whereas legalism struggles to believe that Jesus is Savior... License struggles to believe that Jesus is Lord. And whereas legalism is a self-centered view that I have to perform for God, license is a self-centered view that says I can do whatever I want to. Or we might hear it in our world this way. Accept me for how I am. Right? As if God hasn't done that for us. And so, License, as in all things, can happen doctrinally, where we begin stripping away from orthodox faith, or we begin forming God in our particular image, how we would like him to be. And license can also happen in praxis. That is, that it doesn't matter what I do. God loves me and it's forgiven. And so, and hopefully in saying these two things, you can see just how subtle and how easy it is to fall on one side or the other. And I would wager to believe that each of us are disposed one way or the other, right? As I've interacted with people and as I've analyzed my own soul, some people, they can slide right into legalism, and there's a whole bunch of other people they can slide right into license. And some of it's how you're wired, some of it's the way you've grown up, some of it's the way... You've understood things. 
Oh, I should say this. Whereas legalism, legalism flaunts obedience for value, license flaunts liberty for value. Look at me. Look at what I can do. And though early on Paul is going to address this issue of circumcision, of legalism, of adding to the gospel, as we get to the end of the letter, Paul's going to be addressing this issue of license, of taking away, where he says, listen, you can't live according to the flesh. You've got to live according to the Spirit. It matters how you live and how you go. Jesus is not just Savior, He's Lord. He's not just Lord, He's Savior. So then, if you're anything like me, it leaves you asking this distinct question. So then I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't, right? Because <laughs> you just said, don't do anything and try to prove yourself. That's bad. And then you said, well, you can't do anything you want. That's bad, right? And it's easy for us to think that way because we are prone to believe that it depends on us. But here's the truth. The truth is that the mo- our motivation for our choices, our behavior, our action will always unveil what's really going on in our heart. And so what I'm asking you to do as you drill down deep into the gospel throughout this series in Galatians is begin to analyze your heart. Why is it that you do the things you do? Are you trying to earn from God approval? Are you trying to earn from God uh, a whole bunch of credit that you can cash in later when you really need Him? Or why are you living sort of cavalier-like and doing whatever you want to over here? Are you thumbing your nose at God? The truth of the matter is that belief precedes identity. And identity determines behavior. Does this make sense? It is that our intellectual beliefs begin to lead to our identity. And our identity always precedes or motivates our behavior. And so in legalistic ways, we are behaving, choosing, acting in order to prove to God our worth. In licensed ways, we are acting, choosing, behaving in order to prove our self-worth. But in a liberty-based way, in a gospel that not only saves us, but calls us into a family with a culture, a way of being, a way of existing, a being in the pool, not just jumping off the diving board, that we actually choose obedience to God out of submission to Him. And you might say, well, it seems so semantical. And that's one of the arguments of the devil, right? The reality is that if we are acting for identity, we're believing a false gospel. But if we are behaving in submission towards God from identity, we have tasted the liberty that Christ offers us. That we have not been set free by Christ and then on the way home dropped off on an island to make sense of it for ourselves and live our own life, live our best life now or whatever. 
but that we've been rescued from where we were and brought right home into the family of God and are being raised in there. We've been given the Spirit of God, a down payment that assures us the full inheritance. And it's going to take time, and it's a long process, but over time, as we're living in this family, as we're tasting the, the gospel and swimming in the realities of it, as our heart is being blown away by who God is and what he's done for us, it begins to change us. It transforms us. Our mind is being renewed in the gospel, and we begin to more and more look like part of this family. This is the kind of life that Paul's calling us to. It's why he doesn't say things like, here's the things you need to go and do. He'll say things like this at the end of Galatians. Walk in the Spirit. And if you do, love, peace, patience, joy, kindness, gentleness are going to rise from you. Identity precedes behavior. If you are behaving to get identity, the gospel is backwards. And I'll say to you what Paul would say to us. That's no gospel at all. It's not good news. It is enslaving. It will bind you up. It will steal your joy. It will cripple you with guilt. It will condemn you at every step. So many people say to me, Adam, John 10, Jesus said, I came to give you life and life to the fullest. I don't experience that in any part of my life. What Paul might say to us is, your gospel is no gospel. It's not good news. You're just as bound as you were before. Just as bound to your sinful flesh and license. Just as bound to your religious trying to earn God's life in legalism. But in license where you truly sit, or excuse me, in liberty where you truly sit in the glory of the gospel that has not only freed you, but has called you into the family of God, where let's just be honest, friends, God gets to be God, you don't get to be God. But God is the kind of God that he is, not the kind of God that the world has characterized him to be. Angry, wrathful, judgmental. He's loving, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's patient. He's the God who receives prodigals all the time and does what? Welcomes them into the family to change how they're living. When you begin to live that way, and when you begin to, to deeply find an identity in that, when the gospel is not just a set of beliefs that you think is going to set you free, but a whole new way of ordering your life, you will begin to experience the life that Jesus promises. You will taste love, and you will give love. You will taste joy, and you'll bring about joy. You'll experience peace, and you'll be an agent of peace. You'll find self-control, and you'll teach self-control. You'll be gentle, and you'll encourage gentleness. And this life is the life that Jesus says is blessed. That means rich and glorious and full. It is not chained down by needing to prove ourselves or needing to be better than someone else or needing to have more money or more stuff or more jobs, but is firmly 
entrenched, not just believing in head, but acting in faith, that we are part of this family. Whenever you add to or take away from the gospel, Paul says, you're not just adding to or taking away from a creed. He says you're actually adding to or taking away from the person and work of Jesus. Right? It's the gospel of Christ. And when you do that, you necessarily cripple the work of Christ. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Anything else is another gospel that is no gospel at all. One great way that this letter will transform us in 2020, not in 50 AD, is if we honestly, every single day and every single week, begin asking ourselves questions like this. Where am I finding my identity? Why am I choosing to live this way? What is my heart really after? Does God get to be God? Do I believe that Jesus alone can save me? Is Jesus my Lord? These are foundationally gospel-centered questions and ways that we take the gospel and move it into the crevices of our lives for the transformation that Paul says. A few warnings, and this is not to be a, you know, danger, danger, Will Robinson preacher, uh, but I find it astonishing Right, so I was talking to this in our community group on Friday night. Uh, if you're not part of a community group, you should be part of one. We were talking about this in our community group Friday night. I mean, like, if you could choose any person to preach you the gospel, who would it be? Jesus, right? We would choose Jesus. If Jesus preaches us the gospel, we would get it. If Jesus is unavailable, right, he's on vacation, who else would you choose? It would probably be Paul, right? We'd want to hear the gospel from Paul. And here are people who not only heard the gospel from Paul, but lived with Paul for a period of time and embraced the freedom of Christ. And he says, how quickly you have reversed the gospel. Listen, you get me. <laughs> and oh, by the way, I get you. <laughs> you know, we not get Jesus or Paul, right? If it was so quick for them, it can be that quick, if not quicker, for us. And here's why. Because there is no false teacher that comes in denouncing Christ. Right? They all speak the language. Yeah, Jesus. The gospel. He died. He was raised. But they add to it or they take from it. In sometimes subtle ways that can lead us careening off a cliff back into utter bondage. It's why Paul uses some pretty strong language. Like, listen, even if an angel were to come to you and preach another gospel, this came up in one of your questions too, does Paul hate angels? No. Paul doesn't hate angels, right? Even if an angel comes to you and preaches another gospel, he says, 
he should be cursed by God. He or she should be cursed by God, right? What's he saying? He's making a point that the message is more significant than the messenger. And oftentimes we are wowed by messengers instead of, in a Berean sort of way, truly wrestling with the message. There's lots of content out there for you, friends, including the content that I distribute to you. None of you should be swallowing it without discernment, without rightly seeking the gospel for what it is. No matter what author's name is on the cover page or how big the church is that the preacher is preaching from or how heartfelt the message is or how it meets you just so right in that moment. The enemy of God is not in the business of announcing his presence when he misleads the people of God. Can I pray with you?